Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Claire. We're from Man Mission. And you are listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture Hello everybody and welcome back to what is now our fourth season of the House Culture podcast hosted by me, the managing editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. I've missed being behind this mic talking to you guys and oh man, have we got some big guests lined up for your listening pleasure every month. I also want to say a heartfelt welcome to all of the new followers that have joined us whilst we've been off season. We are House Culture, a collective of house music fans who have come together through their mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. Our home is on Instagram at housecultureNet and if you haven't already, come and follow us on there where you can connect with over 100,000 people from across the planet. I had to get a mention of that milestone in there somewhere. Also get those digital fingers dusty by digging through our back catalogue of previous podcasts. We've spoken to everyone from legends such as Norman Cook and David Morales, founding fathers such as Danny Rampling and Graham Park, leaders of the new school like Purple Disco Machine and Josh Butler, and important people behind the scenes that make all of our dance music dreams come true, like Pike's Hotel creative director Dawn Hindle, and the person widely credited with bringing dance music to Glastonbury, Malcolm Haynes. If you don't recognise the name, have a listen as we make sure all of our guests have a fascinating tale to tell. Now, listeners, I hope all of your worlds have recovered from what has been a very turbulent few years. It's certainly been tough, but Clubland is back with a bang. And this summer season is shaping up to be one of the biggest ever, especially on the Isle of Ibiza. And that is where we are kicking off this season of the podcast. As I sat down with a pair of absolute legends from the island, Mike and Claire Manumission. In our chat, you'll hear how they took an already successful UK club night called Manumission to the shores of the White Isle, 
we were told that, you know, Ibiza would be maybe a good place to go. Then I managed to go to Coo. That was spectacular. I was at this club. It's enormous and it has a swimming pool in it. It's got trees growing in it. And I said to my brother, imagine we can do Manu Mission here. And Koo said we could do every week. How the entire enterprise completely took over their lives. Manu Mission was an obsession itself. Everything we did was for Manu Mission. We were on this massive mission. mission. (laughs) (laughs) And money for us was fuel for, For for Manu Mission. What they needed to add to take Manu Mission to a level never previously seen by any any other clubbing institution. Manumission needed the motel. Every stage of getting the motel was impossible. We were just so determined we We were going to have it. We knew we were going to get it. And how, for an upcoming book, revisiting the evidence from that notorious Manumission motel made them feel 25 years later. We've got this huge, like, old cabinet um, full of all the photographs and the tapes and everything. So we got the footage out and started playing some of the tapes. And we were like, oh, my goodness, we were so shocked. And we were like, OK, I think we should burn them. It's too scandalous. <laughs> now, as you'll also hear, Claire has recently written a memoir called The Motel, High Times in 90s Ibiza. And with the release date still TBC, I hope you can appreciate that we didn't want to spoil all of the stories contained within. However, you'll hear enough in our conversation to take you back to those heady days, as well as prime you for the book's release later this year. This conversation was recorded live and direct from Mike and Claire's mountain hideaway on mainland Spain, and in the company of their menagerie of animals. I think it all adds to the atmosphere of being in the company of two incredible free spirits who have rewritten the rule book on what it is to go clubbing and, as you'll hear, except to do it again this year. This is Mike and Claire Manumission. House Culture Hi, Mike and Claire. Welcome to the House Culture Podcast and thank you so much for sitting down with us today. You two are a pair of Ibiza legends who have not only presided over some of the wildest parties the island has ever seen, you are also landlords of the infamous Manumission Motel. Now, we want to kind of dig into some of that, but we always like to start at the beginning as well. So can you tell us where you grew up and your formative clubbing experiences when you were growing up? One of you wants to go first, it doesn't matter who. Okay. You go okay, so hi Matt. Hi. <laughs> um, hi. I started um, going to nightclubs when I was 13. I, um, me, my, me and my best friend Jackie, uh, she was five foot ten, I was five foot seven and a half mm-hmm. at that age. And we discovered if we kind of got dressed up, we could sneak our way into nightclubs. So we started in local nightclubs in Watford, like Paradise Lost. And then we would jump on the train to London. And yeah, so I started to, um, yeah, started really young. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and even before that, I was roller discos and I grew up in Harrow and there was a big kind of um, drinking culture. There was a, like a lot of drugs. It was um, like a, yeah, a lot of street kind of culture. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I was... I when when I discovered nightclubs I was just smitten um and then it was literally every weekend um in London in in clubs mm-hmm. and um yeah and then I went to Ibiza when I was 
must have gone when you were 17. 17 mm-hmm. and just for two weeks absolutely adored it and then the next uh summer i um went out there kidnapped my little sister and literally we went out with 50 quid and slept on park benches and then got adopted, got taken in by, you know, like the scene was so uh, kind of friendly and open. We People like gave us uh, like one one of their beds and they would like, to, you know, top and tail and me and my sister would top and tail and just met so many amazing people. And then I ended up living in a squat. <laughs> and, um, with and a sea view. With a beautiful sea view. And yeah, and then I met Mike and I never really kind of went back. It just, yeah, went forward into the manumission years yeah yeah so i mean even leading up to that what was that those formative years in watford harrow london what was the scene kind of like during that era was it you know the community that you were getting into that you were that you loved or was it the music what was kind of driving that passion um so even before that um i loved to dance so okay. i you know three years started ballet and then then I, I discovered disco dancing which i just found was i thought was fantastic and uh, there was a big punk scene in harrow too in the 80s so me and my sister used to hang out with all these older punks and they used to dress us up and stuff and that was a big part of it for me was was the costume element mm-hmm. the fact that you could transform yourself i was i'm not, i'm actually quite shy but then if i put on a costume um and dancing is the same i find i can really express myself when i'm dancing so nightclubs were the perfect stage to really express yourself and become that you know somebody else and then it was the drugs so then first it was the alcohol which you know me me and my best friend would steal from the cupboards of our parents <laughs> and mix up these disgraceful cocktails of anything we could find with a tube of toothpaste in one hand and this mixture in the other and we would just drink it and then squeeze the toothpaste uh, and try and take away the awful. It was just a, <laughs> not a good idea. Um, so first it was, try, I, I don't know, I was just trying to get, you know, as drunk as possible. And then and then I think I was, um, I don't know how, I, I, I was in a club in London, maybe the Milk Bar somewhere. Mm-hmm. I can't remember, it was one of those underground clubs in London. And I, I took some ecstasy when I was, I think, 15. Um, mm-hmm. And... And I saw that the guy standing next to me took like the head, his head off of his shoulders and put it on somebody else's head. It was, I'm really, I'm really sensitive with drugs. So I literally a quarter of a, a, an ecstasy and that, that would be me or a dab of speed and that would be me for the whole night. So then, yeah, then the combination of that and that with the danced music, I was a raver too. I was really into the rave scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to just dance all night and then come home on the, on the, the night bus, like quivering and and yeah, I still remember the come downs. Um, yeah. But yeah, and, and it was really open the scene, you know, mm-hmm. it was it was really friendly. And then, yeah, when I got to Ibiza and then I just found like Ibiza was a huge extension of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like, yeah, it was just like, you know, the warmth, the sunshine mm-hmm. and just living that lifestyle. Because yeah. um, yeah. back in that this was in 93 and 94, mm-hmm. 94 when I actually went there for the whole summer. Mm-hmm. It was, it had fallen out of favor with the, the British, you know, it wasn't uh, popular anymore. 88 had kind of died, come and gone. And um, so it was really laid back. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a really kind of magical time. It Cafe was Del Cafe Del Mar, mm-hmm. um, you know, Mambo was just, it was like its first year, I think. Mm-hmm. 
um so it was yeah it was a very relaxed vibe uh, yeah. in san antonio awesome and yeah. you know you mentioned 94 there as well and that is you know the year that manumission started in manchester is that right mike as well yeah um can you you know tell us about your clubbing life leading up to that point as well I, you know i I'm, I'm aware that you guys met in ibiza right so just a story yes, of right, where yeah. before the paths crossed what, what what was your experience in in clubland like mike well my experience in clubland i mean i'm from a village in lincolnshire a small village mm-hmm. and i always had you know most of the people my friends and didn't really want to leave the village but i always had a strong desire to to live in london mm-hmm. and eventually I, I did manage to move to london our first clubbing experiences, I suppose, were like obviously the local legends in Sleaford. It was, uh, you know, like uh, one. They were not like clubs became. I mean, mm-hmm. this is where you'd have the, the talking DJ. You know, the mm-hmm. DJ would play a record and he'd talk, and it was kind of a place to go try and pull. Although none of us were very successful, I think, at that back in the day. And then I went to like Venus in Nottingham, which mm-hmm. was cool, and um, yeah, that was probably the, the 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 coolest club near us. Eventually, I did manage to go to, to move to London. I went to university, uh, studied architecture. Mm-hmm. And th- at that time, I think it was sort of the beginnings, I suppose, of like the acid house scene. Things. So I got to go to things like the Mud Club. And um, I can't remember the name of many, but there was lots of cool stuff going on. It mm-hmm. was like something was happening. People were talking about Ibiza. I had no interest in going at all because I didn't take any drugs. And I was like extremely, what would you say? I, health conscious health conscious i did gymnastics so it was mm-hmm. like i was like um, you know but I, I loved in i loved london and i loved going to these clubs and parties went to a few and then then i had my eyes set on going to to live in new york and so went to new york for a mm-hmm. bit uh in you know but i couldn't afford to stay ended up coming back and then i lived in paris for two years and in paris i went to some pretty cool parties there i went to there was a big uh I ended up modelling in Paris. So I got. Uh, I tried to get a job as a, a dishwasher in a pizza place, and, and that didn't work at all. And I ended up being becoming a model with Elite, which was amazing. And the booker took me to uh, the booker from Elite took me to this gay club called Boy, mm-hmm. which was really cool. Had a great energy, and there was a club called the Bandouche. So, uh, it was more fashion, you know, to go there as well. Then. Uh, Kinky Galinky in London, mm-hmm. I went to a lot. That was good, and then I, then I did finally move to New York, and I went to to Nell's, the the Tunnel, mm-hmm. uh, Limelight. Um, where did I go to? Club USA. Club USA. Mm-hmm. I mean, the New York club scene was fantastic back then. You know, it was yeah. um, it was like that was the time of Michael Alley. He had all his club kids, and this is before he'd murdered his drug dealer. So it was like. <sighs> just the the cool character mm-hmm. and uh, the club kids were very cool too and they were kind of out there in a kind of like a sort of I don't know what you describe them as kind of colorful raver sort of way mm-hmm. um, so I'd been my kind of club experience I kind of missed out I was there at the beginning of the, the UK stuff with, with those London things missed out on a beat completely mm-hmm. I was like five years between Paris and New York and nipping back to London and it was more in the gay scene and like the more flamboyant scene um, that I enjoyed, and particularly because it was like where I grew up, it was um, the clubs were, were were quite violent. You know, mm-hmm. the, a fight could break out at any moment. And whereas in the gay scene, that never happened. The music was great. The people, you know, were were lovely. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I was finally, when I was evicted from where I was living in New York, I went back to stay with my brother in Manchester. 
Mm-hmm. And that's that was like in the, the I think it was probably getting close to December of 93. Mm-hmm. And then because we um, I'd been raving up about how good the parties were in New York. And my brother told me they were great in Manchester. And I got back and I couldn't really understand it. I was like, well, it's just a DJ in a room full of sweating people. I said, these are terrible. <laughs> you know, we could do better than that. And so and, and he said, well, why don't we? And, mm-hmm. I, and so then I said, well, nobody will give us a club. Mm-hmm. And I probably should save some of the story for the book because it's in the book. But eventually we get a club and uh, have a plan to to revolutionize the club scene, mm-hmm. and which we plan to do within 12 weeks. And so we've got our, our mind is set on getting to the top of the DJ magazine club charts within 12 weeks, which we do. Mm-hmm. And, and then um, because Manny started in a in Manchester was in a small gay club uh, called Equinox mm-hmm. and uh, which and Lacage. And um, I suppose I just try to make it incredibly good value. So it's like when we when we launched, it was five pounds, mm-hmm. but it went from eight o'clock. It started at eight a eight p.m. at the Athenaeum. Then we did a street parade to Equinox. Mm-hmm. Then we went down. We were in Equinox until four in the morning, and then we finished off from Lacage till six six in the morning for kind of breakfast and more music and whatever mm-hmm. and, and and it was five pounds and I, yeah and uh yeah it worked really really well i mean i don't know what, what to say there <laughs> i mean it must have been uh like a like you say it's not necessarily even a club night it was more a, a, a live theater ongoing experience there was i assume there was nothing else going on quite like that in the scene up there at that time i mean you had there was the you had vague in leeds which was good mm-hmm. And that was kind of like a, it was a sort of a mixed, um, like a mixed night, not gay, not straight. I don't know if they would call it that, but it was like, you know, kind of accepted that that was a nice night that happened in Leeds. And then there was Flesh, which happened at the Hacienda, which was, I think, what's his name? Paul Con, maybe? No, Paul somebody. Anyway, who, that, that was pretty cool, you know, mm-hmm. but there wasn't really anything, like you say, there wasn't anything like manuals because all of my uh, experience going out had, had taught me like, the whole thing of going into a club was, could be a really nerve-wracking experience, especially the ones that I went to or had been going to in New York or London or Paris. Mm-hmm. To get into the club was wasn't you were you just couldn't get in. Mm-hmm. You had to look a certain way and act a certain way. And so I was determined that when we did Manny Mission, it didn't matter how you looked if you were not if you if you didn't have the right energy, you weren't getting in. Mm-hmm. You know. So basically, Manny Mission was always very accepting of everybody. You know, so and I did the door myself. I did the, the selecting myself, mm-hmm. and uh, and it, to, to try to have the right atmosphere. So it was. Um, how would I say? Yeah, I think that kind of flowed through from the very beginning throughout the whole. Yeah, yeah, that's true because you know how the clubs are very elitist, aren't mm-hmm. they? Well, they, well, they used to be. So that you'd get to the door, you'd be, maybe be as nervous as shit. Are they going to let you in at all? And I, I always felt that 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 bad energy, that mood, would. That would that would go inside with you. Like yeah. you might get, they might spot that you're not actually supposed to be in here and throw you out at any minute. Mm-hmm. So you'd have all these people slightly act, uncomfortable, uh, yeah. yeah, being pretentious, acting yeah. a certain way. So I thought, well, if from the door we could be really welcoming and, and um, like in in the right way, so that everybody, like, it's like a party in our house, and you're mm-hmm. welcomed in, and you come in in a very good mood, and you've been entertained. So you like. If you'd have been on the street parade, there'd have been music playing and people would have, you know, we'd get the vibe just right. So that by the time you go in, all of that pretentiousness is not there. 
and everybody's on their on their best mm-hmm. kind of the, the best version of themselves i suppose it's yeah that's carried on through yeah mm-hmm. yeah and like looking at it as you are ca- almost casting a film for the night and you're building that energy and you know like you say everyone's positive mm. when they walk in rather than mm. having that nervousness which can be that subconscious underlying emotion like you say of tenseness on the night mm. so how so the connection from manchester to ibiza how did that evolve and how did that ah, come about uh, okay well so what happened we said there'd never ever be any violence in manumission that was a one of our it was an important thing for me and after we were voted the number one club night in the UK by DJ Magazine, uh, may, maybe I should step back a second. So Manny Mission in Manchester was a mixed night. And um, the, the idea was because I always felt that the, the, a mixed gay straight night had, had a better, better atmosphere, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I was told there's no way the gay crowd will go to a, a mixed night. And I said, I didn't believe them. So I, I drew this poster, this flyer, and on it, there's a guy, and, and it looks like a kind of ordinary guy. And it says, John Wayne, security guard. Mm-hmm. And said, last week, I went to the manumission, and I've discovered that men give better blowjobs. Now, I've left the wife and kids and live with my boyfriend, Tom. <laughs> and then underneath, it said, health warning, manumission could seriously damage your reputation as an insecure heterosexual male. <laughs> and I printed that up. I post, fly posted it all over Manchester, especially around the gay village. Mm-hmm. Well, I tell you, when we opened, all the gays came, you know, it was like, it was, it was it, it, you know, and it kind of set the tone for, mm-hmm. for, uh, for things. All right. So, but the, the same thing that the kind of that reputation kept away the more violent straight crowd. Mm-hmm. So once we were in the number one club in the UK, that changed. Then mm-hmm. people would come in saying, you know, um, more of a violent element to try to get into the club, mm-hmm. you know, so normally their own homophobia would keep them away. But there, then that changed. So after about four more weeks, somebody came in with a uh, with a knife. He was thrown out, and then he, he kicked the door down, poured petrol down the stairs, and, and like you know, it was a, it was a, it was not a nice incident. Yeah, and yeah. we just said, okay, that that's the last manumission in Manchester. Mm-hmm. And then how Ibiza came about was basically a holiday. It was like I wanted to go to Morocco. Mm-hmm. And then um, to, uh, we were told that, you know, Ibiza would be maybe a good place to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but we had no plans of going to any clubs at all, you know, because we'd just come through like 16 weeks of Manchester and we paid extra to stay in San Antonio around the around the bay because we were told that was the place to be. Mm-hmm. But after a week there, I'd found a, um, got a free invitation to, to Pasha's birthday party. So we thought, well, why don't we go to that? And went on. That was quite nice. And then, uh, then I managed to go to Coup, and I was like, "Well, the, the opening Coup, and that was spectacular." I was like, "This, this is a club. It, it's enormous, and it has a swimming pool in it. And it's got trees growing in it." Mm-hmm. Then I said to my brother, "Imagine we could stay here and do manumission here." So then uh, we got someone to fax the clubs <laughs> to say that we were, you know, we're the guys doing the the uh, throwing the number one club night in the UK and we're here and looking to have a, um, uh, you know, a residency for manumission in, in Ibiza. Mm-hmm. And we got meetings with all the various clubs. Space said no. Pasha offered us once a month. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't go to Amnesia. And Koo said we could do every week. So we we, we chose to take the Monday night. And, but it yeah. was just in the side. You know, oh, oh, yeah, no, we didn't have the whole club. Yeah, yeah the Coco Loco was the, the kind of gay heart of the club. Mm-hmm. So And because we'd been doing the mix night in Manchester, we spoke with 
Brasilio, uh, the, the art director of the club, and we said we'd do manumission in this little um, this little area. I mean, this story goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, well, yeah. It, me, yeah, basically, it was so successful that it spilled out over the whole yeah the whole venue. Um, yeah, yeah. Within, within like well, yeah. on the opening, it was hugely successful, and then it just kept on growing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, what a lot of people don't know is that see, we went on holiday. We were off at the, um, the the Monday night, and I and we were asked to design um, a poster. And I looked around, and all the posters on the island in in Manchester, we couldn't afford like color printing or anything. Like our our posters, I made them on a photocopier, mm-hmm. so I would. You know, I'd resize and zoom up and I'd make a kind of collage poster with drawings and, and text and stuff, and then re-photocopy it and then print it out big. And that would be the fly posters, print it out small, that would be the flyers. Mm-hmm. And I made rubber stamps of the designs too that could be rubber stamped onto cardboard, which we cut squares of cut. So it was all handmade and, you know, yeah. it didn't, yeah. it was a lot of effort, but not um, not expensive. Mm. Well, when when we got there, and then they said, you need to make a poster. I looked around, and there was these really, really awful, badly designed colour posters that would have been so expensive, I couldn't believe it. But one thing I knew is, like, uh, I mean, if I ever had the chance to do colour posters, we would do much, much better than that. Mm-hmm. So I went to the um, the printing place where, to go and design the poster. And when I walked in there, there, was, um, there were these stacks of posters wrapped in brown packaging paper. And I'm like, I want to print on that. And they said, oh, no, no, nobody prints on that. And I said, but you know, that, I want to print on that brown packaging paper, just manumission is coming. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, they let me do it. And and uh, in amongst all these gaudy, colourful posters were these very nice, simple brown mm-hmm. packaging paper ones with manumissions coming and the, and the coup logo mm-hmm. below. And it got everybody talking because people were like, well, what is manumission? And then, um, all right, no, no, I've missed a bit, sorry. We designed the posters didn't go up. Mm. We, but we, I think that's you've kind of covered it probably enough, no? Probably, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a very long story. <laughs> It'll be the longest po- podcast you've ever done. If you, if you, uh, <laughs> no, I mean that real point of difference, like you say, if you're making that differentiation between what else was already out there. I mean, manumission mm. is, you know, it's a it's a kind of I can't think of a different word right now, but it's a dirty word, like as a brand, as a clubbing brand at that stage, like say, you know, you were number one club night in the UK, uh, um, in DJ magazine, and then you were, you know, going out to Ibiza. There was no one, no other real kind of other UK brands doing that at that point, I don't think, were there? Was there like maybe Up Your Ronson or something? Um, in- no, there was nobody. I mean, mm. there was Black and White was still there. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I think they'd kind of split. They were like... Um, Tommy Mack and and his partner Alan mm-hmm. had been kind of ruling the roost with um, black and white, but they'd split. Tommy was in Coup, and um, Alan was in Pasha. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, I think since the '88 time, they'd kind of had they'd had night they'd have a night in you know, one in S Paradis, one in Coup, one in Pasha. They were doing they were with and they was always advertised with like top London DJs, but they didn't have any names. Mm-hmm. So that was the, the kind of thing. So when when, when we arrived, like when I first arrived to Ibiza, uh, once I got out of San Antonio and went to Ibiza town, and I was like, wow, like it was this beautiful kind of, not even medieval, like stonewalled city, not city, but like, you know, like town and all these really, really um, cosmopolitan people. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, they had, you know, all the cool French, Italians, Spanish, the, and the, 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 the gay scene was incredible. They were like, you know, it was just, 
this is and, and yeah because it wasn't under like uh the press uh, like it, it was like kind of off the radar so mm -hmm. it was really free yeah it was yeah. you know it was like this private like not private but this sanctuary where people could escape to and it reminded me of like said i because being from a village i liked i liked it when i was in new york or london or paris because there were these different people that people that thought like I did, like, mm -hmm. you know, like, and had, you know, like certainly in New York, you could be anything you wanted to be, mm -hmm. you know? And if you said, I'm going to be a film director, people would say, great. You know, I know somebody can help you. Whereas if you said it in, in England, generally, they would say, yeah, you're never going to be a film director. You know, that's, that's the kind of, uh, before. So like, uh, what I liked about um, Ibiza reminded me of the, those cities, but it was on an Island and in, mm -hmm. in, in the, middle of the Mediterranean I was like wow mm -hmm. this would be you know I could live here yeah and yeah. uh and it certainly wasn't a populist not for the British at that time it mm -hmm. was like I think in 88 89 it'd been you know like in the news and fashionable there were a few kind of straggling around that stayed but it was not on the hip list it was um but that made it perfect because yeah. it was like all these other cultures and the mix of people and like Claire says you're totally free to do really whatever you wanted nobody's right. watching you yeah and so take us through the first banyu mission party at coup in ibiza what was the planning for that what was the the you know the mission statement in terms of what you wanted to create and who were you trying to draw in and what what you know what did you want to achieve and how successful was it in terms of those um initial ones in in coco loco yeah yeah no, so what happened the funny thing was so we went back to manchester after the holiday, mm -hmm. and we'd uh, kind of expected the posters to be put up, you know. And I kept calling, you know, Nick at the rock bar and places to say, are the posters up? And there wasn't a single manumission poster up. And I'm like, this is terrible. And, you um, know. What you learn in, in a VC in a is you have to do everything yourself. Yeah. You cannot <laughs> rely on anybody, um, the clubs at all, to give you any support. Mm -hmm. um, no, you yeah. You actually have to do everything yourself. Which, like, Claire and I did together for years. Like, we, we designed were... everything. We and... put posters up. We got flyers out. We did the guest list. We did yeah. the shows. We did, yeah. you know, the, the, yeah, the after parties, everything. Mm -hmm. um, so, so what happened was so I, one of us, me or my brother, had to go back to Ibiza. I didn't really want to at the time because I was quite happy in Manchester. I mean, but I, I'm a more sociable than, than, than him. So... It was decided that I ought to go back rather than him, so I went back. Um, well, it's it, his, it's not Andy's world. He, Andy was. Oh no, he was. Yeah, it, it was not his scene no, or his world. It was. Yeah, my, Andy was more like a computer programmer type mm -hmm. when yeah. when that wasn't called cool to be that, you know. And uh, so I I went back. I spent um, a couple of uh, a couple of days in a little hostel, and then I was invited to stay with um, one of the artists, the performers from Pasha, so I could stay in his flat and so I lived there and you, uh, with him and two drag queens and basically I I was there for six weeks mm -hmm. and putting up posters everywhere and inviting everybody so it was like I'm just saying to you yeah. <laughs> okay I don't know how much you're supposed to say I'm not so <laughs> all right yeah so I think I'm, I'm walking into book territory here so some of this you have to read in the book yeah yeah of course you know, in terms of you, you're kind of setting up that party and, you know, like you've, you've already mentioned as well, that it grew and grew and grew, brought in all of these different elements. How 
did you get involved with it Claire and at what stage did you meet Mike and you know start working together and, and getting together how how did that happen where I came into it was I'd been living in San Antonio um in this squat um and I'd gone down to see Javi for Mambo's uh Mambo every single day for like I think two weeks and he said he'd never met anybody so persistent in his life and eventually he agreed to give me his job give me a job I mean I'd, I'd worked for every single the worst of the worst uh bars and and small dingy uh hives in San Antonio and eventually I persuaded him to give me this job mm-hmm. so Javi gave me this job as um I had to stand on the, the like road going down to Cafe Del Mar and tell people to go to Mambo's. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so I would do that every night, and I just, you know, and and it was great. And then a friend of mine that I lived with um, was a flyer for Manu Mission. I actually went to Manu Mission on my twentieth. Um, was it? No, it was my. I think it's twentieth birthday because you we met when we were. Okay, yeah, I went yeah. on my twentieth birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that must have been the. The opening. All right. I think I think that was the opening or the second one. Right. It was right on that. Yeah, because it didn't open till late July that first year. Mm-hmm. You know, because. So okay, so I must have gone to the second one, um, and then a friend of mine. He we got broken into. The squat got broken into, and, and it, it really upset him. So he left and he went back to um, the UK. And he said to me, "Do you want to take over my flying uh, job?" Mm-hmm. So uh, I asked Javi if it was okay if I flyed for a manu mission at the same time, and he said, "Yeah, anything's fine as long as it's got nothing to do with Cafe Del Mar," because <laughs> they were like enemies. And uh, Jose ended up being a really good friend of ours. Mm-hmm. Um, but one night, my friend um, was um, one of my best friends, Alice. She was actually flying for Cafe Del Mar. For, no, for Jose's night in Pasha, oh, he used oh, to moon do dance. moon dance. Mm-hmm. So she had her moon dance flyers and. She went off to do a wee, like on this, uh, like this building site, and handed me her flyers, mm-hmm. just as um, Javier and um, Jose kind of turned up at the same time. So I'm there with my manumission flyers and my Pasha flyers, and there was this like huge kind of fight where they were threatening each other to kneecap each other. It was just like, and I was, I've got this terrible thing that when I get nervous, I start laughing. <laughs> so, so instead of like t- explaining what the situation actually was, my friends over there <laughs> doing this endless pee that's trickling down the hill towards us, and I just <laughs> find this whole thing ridiculously funny. So, I've got the two of them shouting at each other, and I'm just uh. oh, giggling away. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so I became this. I, I took over his um, his manumission flying uh, position. So how it worked with manumission was with, like we couldn't afford to pay anybody to do flying. So the other people would pay. You get paid, I don't know, twenty quid to fly the beaches. Well, we didn't have twenty quid mm-hmm. to pay anybody. So we worked out a system where you'd get a commission, like a, like a, I think, and, and it scaled up. It was up. like hundred pesetas per fly or 200 anybody that went in using your flyer you'd get paid 100 pesetas and it's like a a pound or something Mm -hmm. yeah and then and it got it went up and up so the more people you got in the higher pay scale you're on Mm -hmm. and i just found it so easy well it meant we Um, could have an army of flyers so rather than rather than just paying two girls we could have a hundred people flying so Mm -hmm. it was like and and this is back before you had to have 
I mean, I did get arrested and put in prison one night, but this is back before you had to have permits and stuff like that. Yeah. It was a bit more like the Wild West out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I literally found it. I mean, I've been going to clubs all my life since I was 13. So talking to, and I, all over England, so talking to pe- people from, you know, just I, I just found it so easy mm. um and i agreed to meet most of the the boys in the club <laughs> and it was like so big that they were most of them they never they never <laughs> found me but um yeah and it was just people loved it you know they mm. um uh, you know it's so so from our side what happens um we're there counting these flies that come in mm-hmm. um and and trying to you know to to work out what to pay each of the people that uh, you know, who's got them. and there are loads of these flyers coming with a little love heart as a symbol because everybody had a symbol mm-hmm. so we're like well, we've got to congratulate the love heart person because the, this this person is making us a fortune and, and getting loads and loads of people in. Mm-hmm. anyway the love heart person who we went to meet happened to be claire mm-hmm. and uh yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> that was at the romance kind of. Then it, then it began. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant, excellent. That's, that's fantastic to hear. Um, and then you know the, the whole um, manumission vibe and everything that went on in that club. You know, you were famous for. It wasn't necessarily always about the DJ. It was about the experience, and it had a whole troop of performers and you know performance artists and all these people kind of taking part in the collective experience of the club um how did you go about recruiting not necessarily you know aside from the djs who you know can promote themselves in that in a clubbing sense how were you recruiting these performers and artists and where were you finding them how did that work behind the scenes i mean i could tell you the early ones the, the, the very first year i would i would get people off the streets so like there'd be a human statue right you're coming to work (laughs) (laughs) you'd be you just sat as a human statue there was there was escape artists right you will have you too you could do a show in the middle and then there were things that were like just um it was to try to it all goes back down to you know the thing i told you about the door like making the vibe right Mm -hmm. it was like giving people things that would cause them to talk to the person next to them so you'd be handed a potato by somebody or, or 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 like just odd things would happen mm-hmm. that didn't necessarily cost much money i mean the very first the first year in 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 ibiza we would go to again not a lot of budget there was a scrapyard next to the um the club to, into down down the old dusty camino and i'd go there and i would rent scrap from them like i mean we would go there every every week on a monday we'd go and- <laughs> yeah yeah. And and the and the guy there, he had a set of like gymnastic rings set up. So me and the guy would work would do stuff on the rings. And this know, place like, really stunk. It was like, oh, it was terrible. It was like a Yeah, yeah but he was super strong, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, no, he was like, amazing. He was yeah. a really good guy, like and, but he was down there in the dirt and the dust. And I would so I'd rent old washing machines, we old toilets, toilets, you name it, <laughs> and we would just make these little staged areas. Well, and you have to remember that all the the the, the um decor people at the club at that time were the drag queens by mm-hmm. night they were the drag amazing fierce spanish drag queens and by day they're all artists so by day they would do the club decorations so they'd make you know glitter signs and then and all this like you know stuff with fabrics and then we would come in with um toilets and broken sinks and smashed up tvs and stuff and like and we put them around I mean, because it's probably very dangerous like you know but we we'd make these like little, like a living room in the middle of the club so mm-hmm. some and then what would happen you'd get some sort of eat up raver would just be sitting sitting on the um 
on the TV, uh, on, on the, on the sofa, sofa watching the TV, and it looked kind of surreal. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of very much like surrealism. I, I was reading one of our big books on uh, surrealism the other day, and, mm-hmm. and it really is, you know, it's much more uh, raw. Um, mm-hmm. But if you look at the surrealist art, that's very much what it was, putting yeah. strange things together. Yeah. You know, um, things out of context. Mm. Um, and just people loved it. Obviously, when they're, you know, when they're on drugs as well, or they're drunk, and they're in this massive environment. And when, then they're in a kitchen. Right? And they're suddenly in the <laughs> it kitchen. Like... They just have so much fun. And part of our thing was always to, as well to take people back to their that child, in, you know, that child, that the child inside them. Mm-hmm. And that would really come out as in Carry On. That's, that's mm. by, you know, the time we'd done, the beach, the street parade, the motel, Manly Mission. Uh, then we would take everyone onto a space to carry on. And at 12 o'clock midday on a Tuesday, I would come out with like, I would have like a thousand pounds worth of toys and costumes and stuff like that. And you literally have, it was only like the last men standing. So anybody who was there was really, they were like putty then. You could do whatever you wanted with them. <laughs> so you'd have, you'd have. And, and it was all the cool crowd. So these are like, your coolest scene in London. Mm-hmm. You know, the would, hippest wouldn't, DJs or wouldn't be, seen, wouldn't be seen dead normally wearing a funny wig or a, or a whatever. I, and, I and have been like dressed like, like an Egyptian or, you know, just looking really, really ridiculous or or Carl Cox in a Tina Turner wig, you know. Um, just You could just do whatever you wanted and mm-hmm. everybody had a fantastic time. Yeah, that's kind of carry-on was hilarious for that, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, and like you say, mm-hmm. like that journey to get to that point, these people that have been on yeah. this experience with you that whole way, yes. when they get to that yeah. point at the end, yeah, they're in the palm of your hand. Yes, yeah. yeah. And then also we would travel a lot. We lived in New York. Um, and the performers? The performers. Yeah, yeah. I won't tell you too much about it because it's a big part of the story because the the motel mm-hmm. um literally was just it was me mike and the five strippers from new york and there was otter from new orleans um and dj jerome and they were like this kind of crew this family that we we kind of gathered a lot a lot of them were from new york and mm-hmm. we used to hang out in clubs like juicy and jackie 60s and yeah so we really bought that that new york kind of very laid back um very open sexually um that that vibe was very, very connected with the the, the Ibiza gay scene perfectly. They were, mm. you know, it was very, that mm. that moulded really well together, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, then for us, it was like the the fact that the performers were like were very close like our family. Yeah, mm. and some performers stayed with us for like years, years and years. Yeah, and I, I suppose that's the core. Um, the DJs would come and go, but they would be part of the family too, and mm. they would be expected to come on the thirty-six hour. Um, mission with us and if they didn't join in they weren't invited back (laughs) Um, and they loved it you know you'd have John Carter walking around the street parade with a uh, what's it got a toilet toilet seat seat over his head you know it's just like (laughs) they didn't normally uh, get involved in that way and yeah it just made something we had Carl Cox DJing in a a toga yeah. We said yeah. it was it was a, a bring your own bedsheet toga party for the mm-hmm. Manny Mission the movie. It was a it was a, Lawrence of Arabia was the um, icon the icon of the, mm-hmm. of the in, in, so we told Carl that everybody's going to be we we had visions of everybody liberating their bedsheets from their hotel rooms and putting them on and coming to the party. Well, the only person who came in a toga was Carl Cox, <laughs> 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 and he was in that 
he was in that toga for about 36 hours. It was like, <laughs> he was still wearing it when I had a disco dance and got, oh, dance off with him on the terrace with his, with his Tina Turner wig. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. I mean, did he turn up and think that he's the only person that's been told to wear a toga and you were putting it on him, did you think? Or I don't know. We never got to discuss that part. <laughs> no, but Carl says it was his best ever Ibiza memory. That, yeah. that was his 35th birthday. Wow. Yeah, so. It went on for five days. and uh, probably helped. I, I think, yeah, it, it, he seems very happy with it. <laughs> excellent, excellent. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I mean, you know, you mentioned the motel as well, and I don't want to spoil what's in the book because, you know, the book that's, that you've written as well, it's the, it's the memoir, the motel, you know, High Times in Ibiza in the 90s. And obviously that takes in the, the behind the scenes of the manumission motel, and I don't want to spoil what's, mm-hmm. what's in there. But can you tell us about how the motel became a thing? Obviously you've got this huge club night on the island, and then to start up this motel in an abandoned brothel with water beds and you know all of these things and these stories and everything that was ended up being attached to that um how did that what can you tell me about how that came about was it just an opportunity and you were like let's go for it or was it in the thinking of this is what we want to do it was an obsession really i mean you know manumission was an obsession itself and Mm -hmm everything we did kind of was for manly mission we were on this massive uh mission mission. (laughs) and you know and we were just money just money for us was fuel for 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 manly mission Mission. Mm -hmm. so whatever money we 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 had we we poured back into it in a way that we we instinctively felt uh, it, it needed so we didn't ask permission from our business partners or anything like that. We were just like, okay, we're going here and we're doing this. And and if they said, well, you're crazy, that's going to cost too much money. That doesn't make, it doesn't make business sense. We would just do it ourselves anyway. 
Um, so the year before the motel, we shot Manumish in the movie, mm-hmm. um, where Mike and I flew in 14 different film crews to cover to cover a 24-hour period of. I mean, we did that. That's quite. Um, won't so, go into it too much because it's or you or you can. No, 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 no. Well, just just to say that it's like we did. We didn't just film 24 hours Manumish. We filmed every single. We had 14 parties that summer. We're very mm-hmm. conceptual. We, we, so we filmed every single week with a different film director but in a different style mm-hmm. and each of them had one hour 42 minutes 51 and a half seconds of manumission to capture mm-hmm. and then they added all up together and it would make 24 hours but of course they couldn't resist filming everything so then we had like hundreds of hours of footage we still do which we still do which is fantastic mm-hmm. but it meant that this we flew out this editor from London and uh, and an avid from Madrid and both of which cost he cost the ground a week the avid cost the ground a week the house we rented for him was I don't know how much that was let alone the, the, the hashish, hashish. smoke yeah um, so basically by the time it's come to um, I know I'm digressing but yeah by the time it come to oh, you have digressed I'm totally it. digressed so anyway skip forwards what what I think Claire's saying is that you know that we would use all our money mm-hmm. to make the manumission for everybody to enjoy the next year, like and the next summer. So it and each year had to feel completely fresh. So we had new concepts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, it was our it would job. get to the point where we were excited to go. So when we knew that when we were excited to see it, that it would work. Because and, and also we had to um, we we wanted the island there, so we had to keep it. It had to have its. It had to be manumission. But it had to be fresh again every every year, every. so it was like a reinvention. So they could mm-hmm. fall in love with it all over again. And we um, knew that once we were like dying to go to it because it was going to be so exciting. Then want, everybody else then would we love could, it. Yeah. We'd be able to tell everybody, and they would love it, and they'd want to come. And 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 that worked for mm-hmm. like for fourteen years in a row. And uh, so after we shot this movie, the next year we decided we we'd ha- set our sights on this this motel. So mm-hmm. we were huge. Um, we loved Americana. Um, you know, we lived in New York in the winters and there was this one, the only slice of Americana on the island was this pink roadside motel. And we drove past it. Like, it just looked day. like something out of a Tarantino movie for us. So mm. we were like, we have to have it, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, but we didn't have any money left. Mm-hmm. But we thought, you know, we just we, money wasn't really a thing for us. We just we just assumed we could have all these things that we needed. And and we were so driven that we did find a way, you know, to get these things, mm-hmm. uh, often probably in methods that seem absolutely insane and are probably quite dangerous. Um, but we just, you know, nothing was too much for us at then, was it? There was, well, no. no, because it was, it was like manumission needed the motel. So we had to have the motel. We had to find a way of having the motel. Mm-hmm. We... Every this is the bit you'll find that every stage of getting the motel was impossible. We didn't have the money. Mm-hmm. We we couldn't. Have, the guy wouldn't sell it to us. We thought we could buy it. We still have money at all, but we thought we could buy it anyway. He was selling it already to a German. He was selling it to a German pimp for two hundred million pesetas. We couldn't have it. I told him everything we've wanted in the last four but years. But even a, apart from that, we we even though he said we couldn't have his motel, we flew off to London and we shot the whole campaign. Uh, murder at the Manumission Motel. We were just so determined we we're were going to have it. We knew we were going to get it. Mm-hmm. And then the phone call comes through saying, anyway, I won't say too much for the spoil the book. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and, we- the, and the idea behind it was the Manumission had become so big and we felt like we wanted to give something back to the island and create a small... A intimate. Intimate. Um, hangout. Hangout, yeah. And so we also set off and invited the whole kind of the, the industry to come and stay with us. 
and and all the strippers and all the yeah. I mean, we, you know, they, they were all flying in, and we still didn't. It was, it was cast like a movie, though. It was cast like a movie. But they were all flying in, and we, we didn't even have it at this point. So <laughs> the New Yorkers were flying in. Carl Cox was going to be staying there on the opening night, and it's we still didn't have it. Didn't have the money, but the book tells you or will tell you all about that stuff. It's quite, uh, it, it, you know, now reliving it while writing the book has been. Uh, it, it does seem crazy. I mean, give us give us a teaser in terms of some of the people that went through the doors and, um, you know, uh, and how difficult it was in terms of keeping those things behind those closed doors. I mean, I assume these days that, that something like this can ever exist just purely for the fact that everyone's got something that can record audio, video, whatever in their pockets. Um, yeah. You know, how structured was it in terms of um giving that reassurance to whoever was there that it was you know freedom and you could do whatever you wanted to do um so we had johnny um golden johnny the dwarf was on the door and johnny was a really badass doorman he was like you know he he was absolutely fearless and it's very funny our friend vaughn um who was pasha dancer for years he had the funky funky. and the rock bar and everything and vaughn was staying with us um a little while back and he was telling us this story about um the hell's angels and the godfather of the motel the guy that we borrowed the money from in the end um pounds we borrowed yeah um he was a friend of the hell's angels as was uh, vaughn and they'd all been in pasha together and then they'd said to the guys go down to the motel you're gonna love it but they hadn't told johnny so johnny's on the door and the hell's angels arrive and then um johnny's just telling them point blank no you're not coming in and then by the time Vaughan and, 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 <laughs> and what Vaughan says about these hell's angels, he said these are these are like dangerous people. They'd ridden from Germany all across with dogs on their uh, petrol tanks. <laughs> dangerous dogs, which you're not allowed to do. Nobody's dared say a thing to them all the way through all the way to Ibiza. And, and then, here's this dwarf standing outside the motel saying, You're not coming in. And the funny thing is, Vaughan said that the word on the street was that Johnny had like a, a he had a sort of shotgun. shotgun behind the door, um, which of course he didn't. No. But it's like nobody can. It's really funny with legend how people justify. Um, people used to say the manumission was full because we flew everybody in. Mm-hmm. They said, "Oh, it's okay for manumission." They fly everybody in um, for the Monday, and then they fly them out again. So it's not fair for us because we can't do that. We didn't fly anybody in, you know. And it's like. People make up these these uh, backstories and this this kind of legend. It's, yeah, so uh, they said that Johnny was this uh, martial arts expert and a really really <laughs> well hung porn star or something too. <laughs> you know, just to add to the yeah. so so it was like uh, yeah, it's just these these funny kind of like. But um, myths but that, he was a really good uh, brilliant doorman. Yeah. Doorman, and uh, he knew you know all the island, all of our friends. We called them the island. They're they're like the, the people who lived in Ibiza. Um, mm-hmm. All summer long. Yeah, and even all year long, yeah. and um, so and press were banned. So mm-hmm. you know, normally if you go to a door and you say I'm with this magazine or that, they're like, oh great. And with Johnny, as soon as you said I'm with this magazine or that, uh, he was like, well, you feck off, you're not coming in. So it it it, it was really protected like that, you mm-hmm. know. And yeah, like you say, nobody had camera phones or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so people felt really uh, relaxed. Yeah. I mean, look, what we did anyway was it's, um, even in Manumission or in the motor, we always tried to, to create a place where you were completely free to do whatever you wanted as long as you didn't hurt anybody else. Mm-hmm. So that was always the vibe. And then if anybody famous ever came to Manumission or to the, 
the motel, we'd make sure that nobody would photograph them or like, you know, as much as we could or that, you know, you know, because you want them to be free to do whatever they want, you know. So like we're sitting with, I remember sitting on the beach with Noel Gallagher and this is after Manning Mission carry on and we're in Bora Bora by this stage. Same with JK from Jamiroquai. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people try and creep out of camera and I'd say, no, don't do that, it's not cool. Because it's like, you want these people to be able to, if you like them being around and having a good time, leave them alone mm-hmm. and and they'll carry on coming and enjoying themselves. But if, as soon as that gets out into the tabloids, it's like, you've spoiled it. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. It's-, it's been a funny thing with the book um, because we were very, we didn't know how much, you know, it took us years to even commit to writing the book because, well, one, we've got the kids and, you know, and it was kind of wild back then. Mm-hmm. And now they've all grown up. But, um, and two, it was like, what do, we didn't know what we should say or what we shouldn't say, mm-hmm. you know, and we're very open about ourselves and what happened. Because it's actually, you know, we had this idea of living in this motel with all of these DJs and rock and rollers and strippers and stuff and all the drugs and alcohol and didn't actually take into consideration the effect the environment would have, you know, so we would everyone on everybody. And so we really do explore that in the book. You know, it's because the book is kind of told in real time, mm-hmm. waking up in the morning of my... Tell Matt about the, the black spot. That's what I'm, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. I'm sort of talking about. Yeah, yeah. so with the kind of the, the book um, is set over the long weekend of my birthday. Mm-hmm. And I actually, you know, waking up in that environment eight weeks in um, and just taking a good look around at kind of the chaos we created. And... Um, there's a funny thing that um, during that, uh, that was the weekend that Lisa Anson went missing and Norma mm-hmm. met Zoe and everything. We'd, we'd agreed to do one extra party. So with Manumission and Carry On and the motel, we were already really like beyond stretched to capacity. And then we agreed to do this one extra Manumission on Radio 1. On the, for Radio 1. Mm-hmm. And that's just when it kind of broke the, the elastic, you know. <laughs> and, um, but there, there comes, there, there's come, the, like in writing, we've come to this stage. We were like, we literally can't remember what happens next. Mm-hmm. So um, neither of us. Neither of us. At both at slightly different times, we can't remember. They're a complete black, a huge black spot. Um, and then and the funny thing is, our in-house photographer, Phil, we did have somebody living in the motel with us. He was the manumission photographer. And he was as mad or if mad, not madder than everyone else. And everyone just kind of got used to him. So he was literally always there with his camera stuck to his face. Mm-hmm. And then there's a stage in the video where his camera goes off too. And we're like, well, what the hell happens now? <laughs> so then we had to start reaching out to some of the people who were there. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was like a necessity and, and like a problem at the beginning. It's become a brilliant thing. It's become actually something that's really quite brilliant, as, as well as rekindling loads of, rekindling loads of relationships. Mm-hmm. We've had these hilarious stories um, uh, coming in um, of just... From all the other people that were from, at the moment. From everybody else who was there. So we've got this kind of 360 perspective mm-hmm. and everybody remembers something, you know, different and something personal to them. Mm-hmm. And because a lot of them are artists, um, they're these, it's like poetry, you know, the stories that have come in mm. and really funny. And um, yeah, so we're going to have a whole section in the book where we open it up to the uh, to the other players who were there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. which is really nice. It's, it's like you say it sounds like a fantastic format and like almost on a personal level for you guys to be able to pick up those old friendships and you know be able to reignite yeah. some of that 
fire that was happening back there in the late 90s. I mean, is there been anything particular that's come back or, or really surprised you or been like, wow, I mean, you know, when we've been talking before this interview and, you know, I was aware of it at the time as well, the stuff around Derek Delarge and what was going on there. I mean, not to ruin anything that's going people are going to read in the book, but, you know, is has that been the most eye-watering thing that you've you've story that you've had come back you mentioned well, we're yet to have Derek's we're yet oh, really? to have Derek's so <laughs> this, mean, is a, this is going to be a big one but the funny thing is that, like just for uh, anybody listening it's just quite funny that like the whole the mood of how the motel was and and like and, and our kind of let's say just a dedication to that that moment was so Derek was flown over to play the the opening party mm-hmm. of the motel and he was with Wall of Sound. He just made a really hot record called it was a Trick Shot, trick shot mm-hmm. and Ceasefire, yeah. you know. And they had big plans for him. Well, Derek came over and knew a good thing. He just didn't go home and asked if he could be the resident. Well, we-, we all decided that would be a fantastic idea if he moved into the room next door to us. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so then he was he became El Residente <laughs> and he stayed for... I don't know how many, uh, uh, he stayed till the end and a bit more and then he came back the next, um, yeah. the next summer too. But, but uh, I mean, like, you know, I think, yeah, we're still waiting for Derek's, uh, multiple stories, multiple stories. Um, <laughs> we've got a great one from Norman Cook. Mm-hmm. His is, is very it's funny, really good, yeah. um, a real eye opener. Mm-hmm. Um, and a great one from Richard Norris from the grid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. About him and, um, Stuart Price, uh, Jacques Lecomte. Which is, yeah, I mean, it's for us, it's been almost like an out of body experience. And the funny thing is, you know, um, nobody's actually talked about it. We've never talked about it since, you know, since it happened. It was such like an impactful time in our lives. We kind of shut it all away. Mm. Um, While we let the children grow up, really. And we literally did shut it all away. We put it all in a, in a, we've got this huge, like old cabinet um, full of all the photographs and the tapes and everything. And we literally didn't get it out until we left the island um, and the kids all went back in the summer to visit their friends in Ibiza. Mm-hmm. And we said, oh, let's get the old tapes out of the motel and, and have a look. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to, we were thinking, let's have a look and see. And um, Because we were thinking of writing the book. So uh... Yeah. Yeah, we were thinking of writing the book or we were thinking of making a film. We weren't sure what we were going to do. Mm-hmm. So we got the footage out and um, started playing some of the tapes and, we were like, oh my goodness, we were so shocked. We could watch about five minutes and then <laughs> yeah. we had to put it away. And we were like, oh God, um, yeah, go for a walk in the garden and then come back and watch a bit more. And we were like, okay, I think we should burn them. Let's just, <laughs> let's just burn them because this is just awful. It's just too scandalous. And then we were like, okay, let's just put it away and come back to this in a while. We're too mm-hmm. shocked at the moment. So then we didn't burn them, thankfully. No. Um, and then... Uh, a friend of ours, Mark Seyfritz, who's a film composer, he used to be Goldie's producer and stuff. He used to stay at the motel a lot. He came over to try and help us. We've been working on this, like the motel story for a long time. It's just we weren't sure what format to put it in. Mm-hmm. So he came over and he saw some, watched some of the tapes, but he thought they were absolutely fantastic. And then eventually we just decided what happened was um, in the mornings before the, the kids uh, would uh, we'd wake the kids up for school, we'd, we would get up at 5 a.m. and we just started writing random stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'd write one memory. We'd, we'd, we'd say we'd get up and we'd write like a thousand words yeah. in the in 
before, like in the two hours before we had to take the kids to school. So, yeah. so yeah, and, sit, and yeah. we didn't have any particular order. We would just say, we'd take you know, like memories. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a bit of a therapy for us is the way we were writing down and you'd get them on paper and, and it felt good. We did about 80, 80, 80, 80. stories. Yeah. And, and they're all good, you know, like in terms of, but, but we got to the point that the best place to tell this, the, the most, the wildest time really was the motel. Mm -hmm. And we imagined if we could tell these stories from the motel, because a lot of them happen, our motel stories tell as well, aren't they? Yeah, it, and, we just kept getting drawn back to that that particular moment in time. You know, everything changed after that um, that that summer. So we kind of just decided to literally set the book right there, slap bang in the middle of the like, the, the the pinnacle of all the like the excess. Because um, mm -hmm. then we changed. You know, we had children as well mm -hmm. after in two thousand and. So that that was a, a huge change um, in us personally, and in manumission, and of course in manumission. Manumission always <laughs> reflected what we were thinking. Mm -hmm. So, uh, like while we were watching um, the rescuers, the rescuers are like Disney films with the kids. Mm -hmm. Then in manumission, they were giant sized, like oversized bits of furniture, and, and like it was, we played with scale and, and things, and we we did yeah. it, we did Ibethan myths, which was all about like the they have this kind of goblin creatures in a bit called baraguettes mm -hmm. so we had you know, baraguettes and fairies and all of that went into manny mission too so mm -hmm. it's like you know but the motor was was the wildest time mm -hmm. all the other times were fun but the motor was the one, was just where it went you know like fear and loathing in las vegas it's kind of wild sort of yeah <laughs> yeah how much for the ape um yeah it's um I, you know i can't wait to read it it's um like you say, it's. I'd imagine it being very therapeutic having having done that. It's interesting about, you know, the tapes and everything and the footage and stuff. Do you think that there will be there will have to be another twenty years kind of grace period and then that would be Maybe. released? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe we were saying that yesterday. Actually, Maybe we'll save the tapes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That could be what's next. I mean, um, in terms of what's next for you guys and uh you know you've, you've been through this kind of very therapeutic cathartic look at a, a very intense period of your lives and obviously you know the kids have grown up like you said and I think you know what we've seen in the, in the clubbing scene as well and certainly you know I'm speaking from my own experience is that you know I, I was always going to Ibiza always going to Manumission always going to space all these places um I've gotten older I've had kids but now my kids are a bit older I'm starting to get back into it again and I think this is something that we've not really seen before in in that kind of a youth culture being kind of dormant for a bit and then kind of re-emerging and you know everyone's kind of adding to that you know you guys have released a book there have been uh, you know club nights that have been resurrected and things like that what what do you guys see the future for you guys um, in terms of either manumission or just you know you as a you as a couple in terms of the clubbing scene? Well, it's quite interesting because well during lockdown as well as writing the memoir, um, we had been designing like a manumission two point zero mm -hmm. with a uh, with this this amazing team that that we've kind of met over the years as like Madonna's show directors and choreographers, the Talawaga brothers. And uh, another partner is uh, a Ben Pop band who was one of the top creative producers of Cirque du Soleil. Mm -hmm. And plus Mark Safer, it's the, the music composer. Mm -hmm. Together, we've been designing this whole new experience. And because everybody was grounded in lockdown, like the team- We were having weekly meetings with Vegas. 
So it was like was, LA and Vegas. Yeah. Whereas beforehand, nobody, everybody wanted to do this, this new, uh, it's like, a, I don't know how you explain what it is, but we all wanted to do this together, but nobody had time. Mm -hmm. But because they were, they were grounded and locked down, we actually had, it worked out really we had, well. We've had practically two years to, to create the new manual mission, basically. Which so. is amazing because you never would, you would never have that luxury, you mm -hmm. know, and with us as designers, time is the is the biggest time's the most important time's the most resource. precious resource for mm -hmm. us mm -hmm. so we've literally been able to um here in our mountain house the, the fantastic thing was because we were writing the motel we were living literally back in, in that amazing time so for cre creating the new show it's 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 running parallel with that with that time mm -hmm. so it really has that sense of lightness and uh freedom uh, uh yeah i suppose like what you were saying your kids are growing up and, and like your your head's in a different space when you're when you know you're taking your kids to school and you're like now like ours are you know stan is 21 tallulah's 19 gonna turn 20 and daisy's 17. Mm -hmm. right? they're they're you know they're pretty much there like you know like in terms of they're young adults yeah and um yeah, and you, and you're kind of right as well about like you know you do start thinking about like you, you're talking about the um, the possibilities of what you can do and go out or so the the beauty of the whole you know I mean the COVID lockdown thing was terrible for many people and, and devastating for, you know in many ways but the, the the plus point for us was like what Claire says we were able to work with these great people and to create basically Manifestation two point zero mm -hmm. and. Uh, Stop the birds making all that noise on <laughs> What have you got there? It sounds like a menagerie. In this room, there are one, there's two birds, there's four dogs, and there are, there are three cats in this room. Yeah. Yeah. So they've been quite well behaved, considering. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the birds. When we talk, the birds kind of talk back, yeah. you know, so that the more excited we get, the um, louder they, they get. So, yeah, so we've been preparing this amazing uh, new show and we've just actually been... Experience, really, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah, and we've just actually been commissioned to do six uh, events in Ibiza this summer. Awesome. It's very, very exciting. And it will, and, you know, what you're creating will continue the name Manumission or is it something new? So we could we could explain a bit more about the concept, yeah, the, yeah, the concept behind the new event. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, 25 light years away, we found, we've discovered, like, studying the solar system, that 25 light years away, there's this, this planet. 25 light years away, superior beings are watching it happening on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. And what they're watching is manumission 25, light year, 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. So what they, what they see now is that. Okay. So what they say, literally, right. 25 years ago, we were shooting manumission the movie. Mm -hmm. so, and the amazing thing is, we have it so well documented, because like we said, we flew in 14 different film directors. So we have like hundreds of hours of, uh, of, of footage. So we're, we're looking at manumission through their, their eyes. Mm -hmm. And because they are of a superior intelligence, they don't see things the way that we see them. They see things more... And they don't judge. And the, the, the most important thing is they're not judgmental. So when they look at manumission, they see all these souls together on the dance floor. And then you see this happening in the middle of it all. And then what we're going to show is, like, the experience with, like, the sensations of the audience, of the, like, the auras. And, and so the, these superior beings are watching it and, and, like, oh, okay, so this... They kind of go around the whole world and they find on this this moment in time... This is like 
this thing is happening mm-hmm. and and they uh kind of worship this happening this because they they just see it as love as harmony they see all these these wars and all this fighting going on but then they find this little hub of, of like people raving together and all this like mm-hmm. love and stuff going on and they kind of worship this and then they create their own uh, manumission, manumission. Mm-hmm. but the letters get jumbled so instead of it being manumission it's animus omnis okay. which is is the which means all souls mm-hmm. but it's actually it's the same letters as manumission but they're rearranged so on their planet they have animus omnis mm-hmm. and, they... and everything is rearranged so the way they because they try and make sense of what we do so then you've got things like the, the drugs and then they, they do their interpretation of of what the drugs are and what they do and the effects they see so we've kind of done this i suppose it's kind of it's ab- an abstract kind of take on on manumission mm-hmm. from a sci- sci-fi perspective so um and it's very funny because we we all you know we for us things are always we, we love like things that make us laugh so we've just kind of we found a very funny way of looking at all the, the big things that were important in manumission whether it was the sex the drugs mm-hmm. you know um the music we've just um yeah so we've had a lot of fun diving into the into the past and then creating this whole um so and we've created this for vegas but it'll be launching in ibiza this this summer so and we also um, work because we've got so many amazing friends who own venues and stuff around the world that we're going to place it in, like with our friend Lawrence, who has Egg in London. Mm-hmm. We're going to handpick the right places to, yeah, that we think to showcase it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that sounds incredibly exciting. And, you know, welcome back to the fold in terms of putting on like experiences like that. I can't wait to to see more, hear more and, and get involved. Definitely. So Animus Omnis is all souls. In Latin, yes. but manumission was Latin for freedom from slavery. Yeah. yeah, this is the transfiguration of manumission. This is the next evolution will be for all souls. It must have been a lightning strike on your brain when you realised that you could do an anagram of that to create something that fitted out so yeah. well. Yeah, it meant to be. Yeah, well, it would be if you check animus omnis and you t- see what anagrams you you can only make the word manumission from those letters no there's no other word of, of using all the letters it only makes manumission yeah it was a good sign it, 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 you like to say it was it felt like uh, an epiphany yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah perfection cool um so talking about kind of semi epiphanies and you know talking about um you know what kind of drew you into the scene and music wise as well we, we, let's talk about the playlist and um you guys uh have been it's great that you've given these to me up front um and yeah familiar with all of them they're all brilliant choices and these will go into the house culture perfect playlist which you can find by searching for that on spotify and you know this oh, is great. a playlist that um every single one of our guests has put five tracks based on these themes into i checked this morning it was 23 hours long i think now so oh, wow. you know, yeah it's oh, got what a resource yeah, yeah it's um you know incredible left field choices incredible gems massive anthems um and i'm pleased to say as well um that all five of your tracks aren't in there already which is great because sometimes you can get the same ones coming up every now right. and again and you, you don't know whether right. to say can you choose another one or just go with it? Um, <laughs> so um, all I really want from you guys is just uh, just a brief chat around why you've chosen this and why it's meaningful for you in the context of the of the theme. So 
yeah. in terms of a catalyst um and i know this was your choice claire um what a track that kind of originally got you into dance music or or opened your your ears to something new and cool um and you've chosen yeah white lines uh the grandmaster flash mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> i think it's the earliest uh uh kind of electronic track i remember hearing you know i was i think i must have been what when did it come out? It came out when you were nine years old, I think. You know, I was like really young. like, mm-hmm. And I remember the words and I still remember the words now. And I, they had like quite a profound effect on me, um, like the injustice of, of everything that he was talking about in mm-hmm. it. Um, and then obviously yeah, the, the beats, which still sound fantastic now. And it's just quite amazing with our personal story that then years later we'd have grandmaster flash dj for us in manumission and i was a huge madonna fan when i was a kid and he literally started off by playing three madonna records and and then he had uh you know all of us like girls on the bar and uh and then he went into his like scratching and stuff but it was just amazing that he had everyone in the palm of his hand with these yeah he played one madonna record then his second song was a Madonna record. Then his third song was a Madonna record. I'm, and I was starting to think, oh, God, what, is he only going to play a Madonna record? <laughs> <laughs> and then, then he came in with something cool and scratchy next. But yeah. he had every all the girls were dancing on the bar. The whole room was dancing. They had mm-hmm. the atmosphere just right. And I thought, there's a great DJ. He knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's funny, you know, like the White Lines is anti kind of drugs, the message. But then, you know, with what happened in the motel, yeah. it, it kind of that's another strange uh yeah very important part of our story yeah. um but yeah yeah and people so. can discover that in the book i'm sure um yeah. cool and then the next tune a floor filler i think this was your choice mike can you remember yeah delacy hideaway mm-hmm. uh, deep dish mix yeah yeah i mean the, the, thing, the funny thing is we were, when we were doing some research for the motor we spoke to dj jerome about we've been getting stories from the people and tracks like you know and so what um jerome said he said that you know he gave a couple of times he said oh mike this this one mike really liked jerome was like one of our friends from new york and he was the dj he was a resident at jackie 60s and juicy mm-hmm. and um and then we brought him over to ibiza and he was he lived in the motel and he, and he was, was the, the motel resident, resident. yeah Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we asked him for his stories and his and his records, and he was like, "Oh, now this this is the one that always gets Mike's. Uh, what did he say? His Mike's, head tap. His Mike's head. What, what? Always foot. I don't know what this one always gets Mike going. And 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 we then played we played it, it and, and, and Mike cuts up. My head starts going, and, and like, and I'm like, you know, yeah. And so, uh, and I thought, well, he's absolutely right. That's my track. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Um, and a, a sunsetter, um, what have you chosen there? So, obviously, oh. um, Jose Padilla was mm-hmm. uh, a, a good friend of ours, and we spent many, many uh, an afternoon with him at Cafe Del Mar and just watching and listening to, he just could play perfectly, you know, to the last glimmer of sun had disappeared mm-hmm. into yeah. the horizon. Yeah. But he did that to the penguin the penguin penguin cafe orchestra yeah. yeah he did that uh, perfectly um so we were going to suggest that one mm-hmm. but then um mike was like oh well we used to listen to a lot of jose's tapes back in the day you know like uh, um, when the djs used to do their mixtapes yeah. so john satrin from the blues mixtapes and and jose and, um, they're all fantastic and uh that was just a, that was a track that that for me the packet of the one is 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 a um it's just a perfect 
I'm in Spain, I'm watching the sunset, I'm, you know, I'm not in England anymore, you know, I'm like, it really you know, does catch it really that. just, it, it's so good. And I've heard him play that lots of times. Mm-hmm. So it's like, that's... Uh, Flamenco has always been an important part of manumission too, with Paco Fernandez. So it just really, yeah, it says sunshine and sunset and yeah. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it and it has that change in it as well. It starts off slow and then, mm-hmm. you know, it gets, it yeah. speeds up. Passion, um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, a tear like a very for me anyway for hearing it, um, very upbeat tearjerker. Um, yes, what's the story yeah, behind yeah. behind that? Well, I mean, um, well, there are loads of songs that that are like. Um... So Mike's a huge fan of opera too. So we went through. It. We've been kind of debating over this part of the podcast for two days, and they're like having a bit of a rave in the kitchen. Um, but Mike, uh, yeah, loves opera, so we thought it might be a piece of opera. So, mm-hmm. we, but none of them made a tear come. None of them, none of them. The ones that we thought were the saddest pieces of music, they just didn't really make us. Didn't, yeah, they didn't jerk any tears. Mm. And then, I mean, Nina Simone is then just. I thought um, last night. I, I said, I know which one, and I put that on last night. And well, uh, I mean, for me, Nina Simone, everything she does is so. Uh, it's so kind of raw and from her like guttural and from her everything's got an element of pain you know but Mm -hmm. she always sees something beautiful in that um and then it was that it was the light well you well when you go through it when when it gets to i've got my hat it's got hope that song and it's Mm -hmm. the hope that brings the tear so we both we both looked at each other and i had the tear claire had the tear okay, okay this is the song yeah you know and and it was the positive the light at the end that that you might not have anything, but you've got your hands, you've got your fingers, you've got your your eye. You, you, the, the bits you do have when you have nothing, that's you can build your way out from from those things. You yeah. know, yeah. That's uh, that's what got that's us. That's what yeah. got us. Amazing. That's a great perspective on it as well. I don't think anyone else on the podcast previously has kind of approached that one in in that way. It's that's um, a real fresh take on it, which is great. Okay, a last tune, probably one of the greatest oh, intros. <laughs> over this one because obviously we've had so many parties that we've never ever wanted to end and we were always like cajoling the DJs making them play one more record usually more um, than one more record mm-hmm. yeah um, you know it was going to be either Love, in, Love is in the Air which is always a is, a is a great you know moment I think Norman Cook has already chosen that one when we interviewed him that was his last tune I think oh, oh really, really? Yeah. there you go you well, is um i was saying to mike yeah it's good for the end but it always reminds me of um Citrincha because whenever we used to arrive at Citrincha with we used to arrive on a monday in 2001 with a good ship manumission we literally used to sail in um and an old sailing, an old sailing ship, sailing ship. Mm-hmm. and every time we came in john Citrincha would play that love is in the air, love is in the air. and norman <laughs> was there too of course um, he used to come Norman used to come and greet us when he was on the island. He used to come and greet the good ship. Mm-hmm. So, so then for me, Love's in the Air didn't perfectly represent that final that moment. moment. Mm-hmm. Whereas Let's, Let's Dance does. Yeah, kind of. It's a, yeah. it's a great song. It's um, Yeah, and it kind of says everything. Yeah. I mean, David Bowie, it's, and it's, um, I went to see Sheik and Nile Rogers and obviously worked with David Bowie on, on writing that song. It's incredible. And he did do the the story beforehand in that when he was in the studio with with David and they were writing that song and Noel Rogers turned to David Bowie and said oh do you think do you think we've made it too funky and David Bowie just said is there such a thing <laughs> brilliant response brilliant. That's yeah great. Brilliant. um cool well 
Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I've just got one final question um, before we wrap it up, which is, um, you know, based on the scene and the culture. I mean, we are house culture and, uh, you know, we've got, uh, we love digging into um, all of the different elements of, of the scene. And you guys are a massive part of the foundation of what's been created in terms of parties, Ibiza, and, you know, your your contribution to the culture and the scene has been huge and not to be underestimated at all. I mean, and you've, you've had this period of reflection during lockdown and, and writing a memoir as well. When you look back and take stock on where you are right now and what you've achieved, what does it what does it mean to you to have had that impact on the scene and how do you assess it and square it all in your head? Uh, it's, it's very interesting because of, of writing the book and um, and rekindling these friendships and also because we're the book's being crowdfunded. So, um, you know, sometimes we hide away a little bit um, and it's actually forced us to go out there and talk to everybody. And actually the, the feedback and the, the wave of love that we've received from putting this book out, putting it, putting- It's been amazing. It's been amazing. It's like people are really enjoying being, taking their minds back there and remembering because it was so special, mm-hmm. you know, and life has caught up and, and is what it is, What a, like, and it's it's almost like a distant dream, but by for us revisiting it, writing it has taken us back there. So we're we're very there, and then talking to our friends and 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 them remembering and the, and the wider community of yeah. you know um, of people who came or didn't come and wish they'd come, who are now kind of experiencing it through this mm. kind of wave of emotion and 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 stuff. Um, it's been it's been amazing, uh, you know. Um, and it, it has, yeah, it has kind of reminded us of of, of how special it was. And um... yeah, because the thing when you're a parent, like just you know, like we've had a whole bunch of time not doing this, you know, like it's you know, like, um, and it seemed like a distant life in a way to to us to to the parent. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. And um, how do we feel? Yeah, we're very happy that we did what we did. Mm, Lovely, man. Yeah. It's been great to chat. But have a great day. Bye. Bye. House culture. Wow, wow, wow. What a way to kick off this new season of the House Culture Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and are as excited as I am for Mike and Claire's triumphant return to Ibiza this summer. We now have some more details on what that will be exactly as Mike and Claire have since told me how they have teamed up with a super team from Las Vegas, Hollywood, London, Barcelona and Milan to bring you Alien. Picture this. In a blackout in the Manumission Motel, Claire slipped through a portal into a hallucinogenic dream state and encountered a superior being called Alien. 25 years later, that same portal has reopened. Alien has returned with her version of the world's wildest party and a team of E.T. cinematographers are on a mission to finish what Mike and Claire started. Stars from the worlds of nightlife, cinema, Cirque du Soleil, fashion and shibari unite under the alias of Animus Omnis. This will bring you a glimpse into the future of a party that you will never forget. The Galactic Confluence takes place at O Beach Ibiza on the second Sunday of every month, starting May the 8th and running until October the 9th. 
parties will feature a residency from previous House Culture podcast guest Smokin' Joe, who will be playing alongside some of the world's best dance music producers. And of course, secret carry-ons will also be on the launch pad, so keep your scanners open for those. And whilst you're setting that up, don't forget to head over to Spotify, where you can start following the House Culture Perfect playlist. This is where you'll be able to listen to the submissions from all of our previous podcast guests, as well as Mike and Claire's choices too. Now listening back, I realised that we missed calling out the names of a couple of their choices, with the Sunsetter being the iconic Entre Dos Aguas by Paco de Lucia, completely mangled that, and their tearjerker being none other than Nina Simone's Ain't Got No, I Got Life. So search up the House Culture Perfect playlist on Spotify to hear more. Then this one's on you, dear listener. Please don't forget to do all of that good stuff for us. Love, like, tweet, share, tell your friends or leave us a review. We love hearing your feedback. And if you have some nice things to say, we'll give you a shout out on a future episode as well. And then if you don't already, come and join our party over on our Instagram feed at HouseCultureNet or by following the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. Our huge community is a safe space for all kinds of beat lovers from across the globe. So let's help you stay connected to what's happening in the world of house music right now. And finally, if you want to get in touch with me, Matt Rouse, you can do that directly on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. Rave safe and see you next time. House Culture. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.